You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's check in with Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director of BMO Capital Markets, good friend of the show. Uh, Jennifer, what did you hear or did you hear anything different from Fed Chairman Jay Powell as he uh, testified yesterday in front of the Senate and today uh, in front of the House? Yesterday, people were saying maybe he wasn't as hawkish as we expected. And this morning, the big headline was it's going to be very challenging to hit a soft landing. Yeah, that was the headline. So, Jennifer, what did you take away? Uh, good morning, everyone. So I thought he was, again, I think I said this last week, like he's been very clear, and I'm giving him a, an A for his communications recently. But I thought the big takeaway was the fact that he did not dismiss the possibility of a 100 basis point rate hike. Um, you know, he said, and this is a smart thing to do, like, I will never take anything off the table for any and all purposes. And that's a wise thing to say, because you can't dismiss anything. So I don't know if you Lessons learned, by the way, Jennifer, right? Because remember, a couple right. meetings ago, he said, oh, 75? No, we're not going to do that. Yes, exactly, exactly. That was like, you know, it was one of the first things I thought of that went to uh, the market rallied, uh, you know, last week when he said that they said, oh, you know, he's uh, he's dismissing or he's saying that the 75 basis points is not common. I, I can't remember exact words, but I was thinking, hold it. Back in May, he also sort of dismissed the 75 beeper and markets rallied and look what happened. So I don't think anything can be taken off the table, as he said. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't think 100 basis points is, is going to be uh, a, a thing. It's going to become a thing. But the fact that he's just uh, or that the entire committee is not putting anything off the table is uh, seeks volume as to their commitment, um, you know, to bring inflation back. It's great that they had that commitment. Obviously, inflation is the bane of our existence, as um, uh, President Biden said on a, one of the evening talk shows. But can he really do that much about it, Jennifer? I mean, um, you know, in all of your economics training, um, what does monetary policy do to supply chain problems, supply side problems? Absolutely nothing. Um, <laughs> um, you know, it's a it's a blunt monetary, it's a blunt instrument, and it's you know starting to hammer down on demand, and we're already seeing the effects of that. But you know, as he has said, you know, um, very very often that they cannot do anything to make those you know widgets come off of the. Um, um, off the conveyor belt even faster. Um, you know, there are all these other supply issues that are contributing to um, to the inflation, and that part they cannot um, control. But if they control the amount of demand that is out there, that's you know that's pushing in, um, on the supply chains. 
you know, then they will have, I guess, done their job, um, which is, again, right. cooling demand. And, and it's starting, we're starting to see that already. All right, Jennifer, I got to ask you, Hannah, what's your recession outlook? Do you have a, a consent or a feel for whether this economy will roll into a recession? And if so, how deep, how yeah, shallow, all that kind of stuff? I don't know if you heard me, Jennifer, but this morning we heard from George Buckley over at Nomura. He thinks we're going to have five quarters of back to back contraction starting in Q4. I heard you. That's yeah, scary. I, heard you that. I was like, holy, that's, uh, that's quite. That's an outlier, quite, right? Uh, He's an outlier. Yeah, it's, a, it's quite headline uh, catching. You know, we've got we've actually been trimming our, our growth outlook. We've got uh, we chopped next year down to one percent. We originally had one and a half percent of the last move, but we do not have your traditional you know back to back GDP negative GDP readings. But we do have growth grinding slower in the second half of the year. The first half is you know pretty decent notwithstanding that 1.5% drop, and that's because of, again, um, sorry, in the Q1, that was because of imports and, uh, and inventories. But the second half, we have slowly grinding um, slower into into the turn of next year. So, you know, almost like barely 0% growth in Q4 and Q1, for example. So not an official, you know, again, negative back-to-back reading for GDP, but enough to have growth grind down to about 1% next year. Jennifer, what's your view of, of the consumer? Matt and I were just talking about a story on the Bloomberg Terminal. Darden Restaurants reported some better than expected results. Their same-store sales at their restaurants up almost 12% in the uh, quarter ending in May. That kind of surprised me given some of the inflationary pressures. How do you, what do you, how do you think about the consumer here? I think, you know, I, 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 we say this all the time. You know, you can never, ever underestimate the U.S. consumer. Obviously, they're under pressure from these high prices, from record gas prices at the pump. Um, but at the same time, the fact that the job market remains very tight, the fact that people are still getting a regular paycheck, which I think speaks volumes for all of this, and then they still have, you know, a, a little nice tidy pile of savings that they can fall back on. Um, hopefully, they're just going to keep it there. I think just to, you know, just to make sure everything is okay. But, you know, consumers are still dining out. You know, you were talking earlier about uh, Olive Garden, for example. You know, the fact that they are still dining out, they're still. Um, buying sporting goods, for example, um, I think in the last retail sales report, I think speaks volumes that, you know, the consumer, you, you cannot write them off just yet. What about but obviously there's going to be questions. What about the job situation? I mean, people who are looking for jobs and they were being picky. Is it time for them to, uh, you know, settle? Oh. Take it. Settle. Oh, yeah, take it. Or people have, who yes, wanted sure. to sell a house, but they were kind of on the fence. Do it now. I would say, in terms of the job for the for the job market, I mean, at some you, we're already seeing you know initial claims uh, picking up already on a four week moving average basis. So, the job market will not be as tight as a and it's, it's already starting to to ease up a bit. And you know, I've been using this example: if you are a company that has been looking for, let's just say, you know, ten, twelve people, and you've been looking for a long, long time, and you still can't find anyone, at some point you're going to think maybe we don't need all those people. Maybe we can just do with what we have. Especially with demand is starting to ease up a bit, we don't we don't need to hire as many. So, if you do have several offers out there, I would say take one. All right, Jennifer. Maybe some of our listeners don't know the BMO stands for Bank of Montreal. Give us a sense of oui. how, how are things up in. Is it Ontario? Bank of Montreal, Ontario? No. Uh, it's <laughs> it's Bank of Montreal. So it's Bank of Montreal. Yeah. Ah. But, so uh, so the I'm Mo is just for Montreal. Yes. Because Montreal is not in Ontario. That's correct. Yeah. Quebec. Very good. Talk to us about, just give us a sense, how are things in Canada these days? How's the economy? How's the COVID? How are, how's the consumer? How are things to our good friends up north? So we are uh, very similar to what's happening in the U.S., but our, um, our, our lockdowns lasted longer and were definitely more pervasive than they were in the U.S. So because we opened up a lot later, uh, we had a stronger start to the year. 
Um, and we're still seeing some some pretty decent numbers up until like un- up until the second quarter. And but we also see things um, cooling down in the second half of the year. Um, into early next year, as the Bank of Canada starts to raise rates, um, you know, almost in lockstep with with uh, with the U.S. I mean, after the 75 basis point rate hike from the Fed last week, and then the strong signal that they're going to do it again in July, we also raised our uh, our call for the bank to go 75 basis points in July. So, you know, same thing, high prices. You know, we just got a very strong inflation report um, yesterday at 7.7 percent. Um, Again, there is, it's a similar story around the world where inflation is at decade highs um, or you know, multi-decade highs, I guess I should say, and central banks that are continuing to um, to tighten and tighten sharply. And Jennifer, one of the things I, I think I understand about the Canadian economy, the Canadian consumers, the housing, home is a bigger part of the personal uh, yes. asset. Uh, give us a sense of kind of how the housing market is there and, and how people think about that. So the housing market was one of the biggest drivers of our of our strong uh, growth, just given years and years of super low interest rates, and sometimes this this concept that you know that housing has nowhere to go but up, and that's you know clearly not true. Um, so you know now that we've got central banks, uh, the Bank of Canada tightening rates, warning that there is that they're going to be a lot higher, and you know there is fear that the in that the uh, the housing market is going to uh, to be in pain because of that. And it's already starting to drop considerably. And of course, the pandemic um, didn't help with everyone sort of moving moving out of the downtown core. I'm just speaking about Toronto right now, moving out to the burbs and, you know, getting more house for your money. And, uh, you know, so that also added uh, to the strong demand for housing, but that's starting to cool significantly already. All right, Jennifer Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Always appreciate getting your thoughts uh, about the global economy and the Canadian economy as well. Jennifer Lee, Senior Economist and Managing Director for BMO uh, Capital Markets. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The Supreme Court has struck down, as we just reported, the New York gun carrying restrictions. New York is 
famously or infamously, depending on how you look at it, strict about concealed carry licenses and handing them out. You can, of course, uh, get a license for a handgun, um, but you would normally have to keep it in your home, certainly in New York City, certainly in Westchester County, and it's very difficult to carry it outside your home. But the Supreme Court has voided that and established uh, your right to bear arms any place other than just in your house. Justice Thomas wrote the majority opinion, and the uh, ruling was six to three. So um, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan dissented in the case. They're the three, and uh, this is one of the big cases that we've been waiting for. Um, June Grasso is here in the studio with us to, to give us the background on this case and tell us what it means. So June? You've done pretty well so far, Matt. Uh, well, the background on this case is we were, we've been expecting this case to be decided in this way since the oral arguments because it was pretty clear that the conservative justices, and you mentioned it's six to three down ideological lines, the conservative justices saying that there is this right to carry and that New York is its, its law, which is very restrictive, as you mentioned, is unconstitutional. Mm. The three justices in dissent were the liberal justices. So the question is, and I haven't had a chance to read through this yet, but the question is just how far the court went in this, whether they say that all laws like New York's law yeah, are— Yeah, this is key. Or, wet, or whether yeah. or whether there's there are certain restrictions, for example, you know, special areas where you can't carry guns. Um, it's Justice Thomas has been a Second Amendment advocate, and that's putting it mildly for years. And well, they're all in to, favor of the Constitution, right? Well, they all say that the that the Second Amendment they allows just you to interpret carry, it differently. Right? Exactly. exactly well, yeah. I mean, up until this point, this is the first gun law, gun decision in a decade. Mm. So up until this point, in a decision written by Justice Scalia, very conservative, um, you could car- you could have a gun in the home, but this takes it another step, a big step. By the way, not, not car- to be silly, June, but are there um, justices on the Supreme Court who believe the Second Amendment should be repealed? Are there uh, any of those dissenters, you think, who don't believe Americans should have the right to bear arms? Well, you know, I think they all, first of all, you can't repeal this, this to take a constitutional amendment away would be, I'm, I, it's never been done, I doubt it could be done, because um, you'd need to do so many things. But so, but I think they all accept the fact, in their heart of hearts, whether they believe that, I mean, there are many, many scholars who don't believe that the Second Amendment goes in the direction that Heller has put it, that it means that everyone can has a right to carry a gun or to have a gun in their home. I mean, there are many, many scholars who look at the Second Amendment and say that's not what this amendment meant and that the justices have read into it over the years. But I think that everyone at this point accepts the fact that the Second Amendment allows you to have a gun in the house. Well, and certainly at the time it was written, everyone had a gun in the house. Well, but it was, we don't want to get into a historical argument about it. But no, there are, I mean, there are many, many scholars of the Second Amendment who don't believe that it was meant to be as it is today. And there is a lot of difference between, you know, the militia and having a gun for of course. to protect your... And of course, there are many uh, scholars and uh, justices who see the Constitution as a living document and feel that it should change with the times. And then there are the originalists who 
uh, or what do you call them, the fundamentalists who, who yeah, believe... Originalists, okay, textualists. Exactly, who, who, who want to really stick to the uh, words on the paper. Um, in terms of what New York can do about this, because I know that at least at the state level, and I think I've heard uh, Mayor Adams say it on the city level as well, um, legislators were preparing for this eventuality and trying to figure out ways that they could still limit um, the amount of, uh, you know, guns in circulation here while adhering to the decision, right? This is why you talk about, I think, what they call sensitive areas. Right, exactly. So it all depends on what this opinion says exactly, whether it says completely no laws allowed mm. that restrict the use of carrying guns in public. I mean, it's hard to believe that, that, that this says that, right. but as I said, I have to read it really carefully to see what it says. We know that New York's law was very, very restrictive, restrictive yep. as you mentioned. It, okay. it required very res many restrictions, so we'll have to see You had to be a cop. Says. Uh, a celebrity or super rich, basically. <laughs> or, or one of those. All right, I June. don't know about that. <laughs> June, thank you so much. June Grasso, legal reporter for Bloomberg News. All right, let's check in. We've got uh, Fed Chairman Jay Powell. He's still in Washington, D.C., still in front of Congress today. It's the, the Senate. Um, Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, joins us. Anna, you know, I'm not sure what to take away from this. It seems like it's more political theater than than anything. But as you as you think about the communication we've we've heard from Fed Chairman Powell over the last couple of days, and you know, over the last week and so on, how do you think he's approaching this inflation slash recession balancing act? Yeah, I think he is trying to um, not uh, not sound too alarming about recession, but he also wants to acknowledge that. It is uh, that that the Fed officials are uh, realizing that that there is a trade-off in uh, bringing inflation down and un unemployment rate will will rise. You know, as a policymaker, they can control the narratives of recession. So even if they internally think that a recession is a sure thing, they will not come out and say it's a sure thing so so whatever he says about that would be the day right when the fed chair says <laughs> we're definitely headed into a recession next quarter or right. the president it's the president can't really say it either yeah exactly it would be like being in a you know that that analogy of it being in a movie theater and somebody screaming fire <laughs> everybody's running out he did yeah. say though it would be very challenging to stick a soft landing so he's getting closer and closer to making that admission especially as um politicians question him about the efficacy of monetary policy when it comes to dealing with supply side inflation it's just not that useful and the only way you can do it is to by damping down demand right well, you know, he says that, right? But when you look at what's happening now, it, it doesn't seem that way. After the Fed raises uh, uh, rates by 75, if you see that everybody is starting to talk about recession fears and suddenly oil price plunged by what, like almost like $16 per barrel already within a week. So through this, uh, through influencing people's expectations and sentiment, suddenly it, it, he has an effect on, you know, supply. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we, we, we saw oil trading for basically $124 a barrel last Tuesday. And this morning we came down to 102.32. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, we were actually down 20 bucks in a week and a half, uh, not even a week and a half. 
Is that going to be enough, Anna? I mean, um, is the jawboning and a few 75 basis point hikes going to do it? Well, I, I think that even before last week, there there were some disinflationary signs happening in, in the economy, but just not food and energy prices. Um, I, I, I spoke to you guys previously telling you that I, I think uh, headline inflation would get to 9% before the end of the summer. I still think that that is likely going to happen precisely because, you know, food prices is going to ride gasoline prices. Um, um, there's some seasonality with it, and, and it has to fall um, sharply in order to see uh, the, the situation improve. Um, so I still see like 9% being attainable in a couple of months in, in terms of inflation, year-over-year inflation. But at the same time, if you look at core measures, those are coming down in a more sure-footed way. And I, I think that after, if, if the Fed d- does one more 75 bips and, and a couple more 50 bips, I think they could uh, downshift 25 bips by the end of the year and and get to 4% next year. And we will be, uh, we'll, right. that will be an optimistic case yep. for bringing inflation back to 2%. Anna, what are our good friends at Bloomberg Economics? Are you calling for a recession uh, at any time officially? Yes, we have officially adopted a recession um, as our baseline, and we think it will be happening in the second half of 2023. Uh, We estimated that um, a recession before the end of next year uh, could happen with 72% probability. Wow, got a pretty distinct number. Is it going to be a shallow one, a deep one? I mean, Matt was quoting, uh, you were reporting earlier. at Nomura says five quarters in a row of contraction. Oh, wow. Okay. I, we are seeing it more of a short and shallow one because um, typically you need uh, financial distress and some banging sector uh, um, in, instability and, uh, you know, uh, to, to get a deep recession, the type that you see in 2008. And right now I'm just seeing very healthy household balance sheet. Um, you know, mortgage uh, services as a share of income is at historical mm. lows. So even though the housing market, um, the the debt, you know, with the with surge in mortgage rate, people will be paying more. It's still historically kind of low as a share of their income, and I, and so I just don't see those kind of financial frictions that generate that, that could generate a huge and deep recession. I want to talk about school for a second, Anna, because I note um, you got your bachelor's in economics at Berkeley, um, which I think of as you know. Uh, a school where you come at things from a Marxist pers- perspective. <laughs> and then you went and got your PhD at the University of Chicago, which is much more of an Austrian school, right? How do you um, how do you compare and contrast those two experiences? Yeah, I think you Chicago might like to accept Berkeley alum, just try to convert them for fun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but, but yeah, I think Berkeley definitely. If, if one gets an education from Berkeley, uh, you would tend to think that government stimulus, um, you know, is New Keynesian uh, economics works in bringing a, a, an economy out of recession because you think that prices are sticky. Then the uh, uh, you think about externality. There, that that's why there's a case for why government. 
stimulus can can you know get an economy out of uh, you know a liquidity trap right. or you know some, some some sort of situation. Whereas the Chicago School is more of more places more focused on um, rationality. Like you know they they look at a situation like today they would be like. Uh, poor sentiment in response to inflation might be a little irrational because right. of nominal money illusions. <laughs> People's people's nominal wages are rising in part of inflation. They shouldn't be yep. something. <laughs> All right, Anna, good, good stuff there. Appreciate it as always. Our very well-educated Anna Wong, chief U.S. economist uh, for Bloomberg Economics, uh, bringing us uh, some thoughts here as Fed Chairman Jay Powell. Uh, you know, day two of his testimony in front of Congress explaining inflation, explaining monetary policy and the balancing act. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. June is Pride Month and a month when we're focusing on equality issues here at Bloomberg. Today we bring in Edward Moreno, labor and employment reporter for Bloomberg Law. He joins us to discuss the pressure companies face in advocating for inclusion during Pride Month. Edward, thanks so much for joining us here. What did you find? What are companies doing? Are they paying lip service to this whole inclusion, diversity, equality thing? Are they really making inroads? Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, You know, what I learned was that um, when companies do take stands on LGBTQ issues, it's almost always because they are facing or have at some point faced pressure from employees to do so. and this is generally in the past, this has always been the case, but in the past year, this has come up more often as a lot of state legislatures have been proposing anti-LGBTQ uh, bills, such as Florida's Don't Take A bill, uh, you know, bathroom bills across the nation, targeting trans youth, um, and things of that nature. Um, one example of this was, you know, in Disney, we all saw, you know, employees stage the walkout uh, and basically pressured their CEO to take a stand against Florida's Don't Take A bill. Um, in Texas, dozens of companies spoke out about 
uh, a directive from the governor uh, directing the state to investigate uh, parents who are seeking uh, gender-affirming care for transgender children. Um, and, you know, one of the pitfalls that employees are still asking for is, you know, sometimes a company may take a stand on a particular bill, but still support financially politicians who propose those bills. So that's an area where employees are certainly still uh, pushing for companies to do more. So wait, have we... So there are two issues, right? There is inclusive and diverse hiring, um, and then the issue of what a company does in terms of support for political candidates or statements that it makes, if a company does that, right? Not all companies have to get involved in politics. Some of them probably just want to stick to business. Um, In terms of the first issue, how are we doing, Edward? Because that's probably, um, you know, I don't really think that Disney or Kraft need to get involved too much in any political issues, but I do want them to be uh, not to be discriminating against employee candidates and and hiring, especially if I'm a shareholder, as broad a range of people as possible so that I can get the best of the best. Right. So, um, you know, actually what I learned um, was that corporate America is generally, at least from the folks I talked to, um, generally pretty ahead when it comes to uh, internal uh, inclusivity and you know, having LGBTQ-friendly policies for their employees. Um, but, you know, what tends to be the motive for employees to push companies to get into, you know, those political discussions is, you know, a lot of times those bills affect employees. Uh, they may be trans themselves or have um, transgender children. So, you know, it's not always, there's only so much a company can control that uh, impacts their their employees. And from their standpoint, you know, they probably... They have a business interest in making sure that employees are happy and not being targeted by lawmakers because of their identity. And Edward, give us a sense of how much, you know, not just above the C-suite, talk about the board. Is there board support for a lot of these things? I mean, I know there's pressure for ESG investors. Uh, does a board, you get a sense of, at the board level in this country that there is really support for all of this? You know, I think uh, it may be getting closer to that. Right now, um, you know, that was definitely on the lower end of what companies have reported as, like, um, you know, impacting their, how they approach these issues. Um, one thing that has, uh, you know, kind of ramped that up is NASDAQ's new board diversity rule. So more, we, now we know that more boards are disclosing um, if they have LGBTQ members in them. Um, that kind of puts the spotlight on them to, you know, just like with any uh, diverse member of a board, uh, to, you know, take ownership of those issues. And, you know, that might be something that we see in the future. But right now, it's definitely being driven more so by employees, and boards, or even shareholders. Or Yeah, yeah exactly. By uh, by profits, right? You want to hire the smartest and mm-hmm. most capable employees that you can. Um, and you want them to feel as comfortable as they can at work so that they can perform well. And of course, you want your leadership to be diverse as well so that you can make the right decisions to generate the most revenue. I mean, I think of this all from an economic perspective, but I guess not everyone does, Edward? Yeah, um, and actually, you know, even among the employees that um, tend to be making those pushes, um, from what I heard from the folks I talked to, um, a lot of times that comes from, you know, executive leadership right. as well. You know, it's not, all, it's not the lower ranks. It's a lot of times managers, uh, higher ups. So, yep. yeah, I think that's certainly correct. All right, good stuff. Edward uh, Moreno, labor and employment reporter for Bloomberg Law. 
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.